Well, thank you again, Bishop-elect Holcomb, for coming and making time for us. Uh, and thank you all of you for again for being here at this uh, very short Mockingbird event. I was reminded that it wasn't 24 hours, it was less like 16 hours, right? Um, thank you so much for coming. This is the first time we've done this and uh, it seems like it was a good idea. Maybe we'll do it again. And thank you to, um, for, to Stu and to his wonderful team, to uh, Stephen and to Megan and to Julie. I didn't get to thank her earlier. She's been, uh, can we all just give them a hand, a hand of applause? It's really fun, you know, we, we, the second that Stu was made the, the, in charge here, the rector, he said, we got to do a Mockingbird event, we got to do a Mockingbird event. Then I came down and I saw that like they had this huge property in the middle of town and a great hotel next door. And uh, then we said, okay, we got to do it at a January Mockingbird event because everyone wants to get out of the cold. And then of course the pandemic happened. So um, thank you for your patience and I do hope we can do it again. Uh, I've been thrilled to be here so close to where, um, where I've spent so much time in Central Florida because my mother's family's from here. So um, anyway, thank you again, and I'm going to speak probably not quite as long as I thought I was going to because both Jane and my mother completely scooped my talk, <laughs> and that's a good thing, but... Um, I'm here to talk about the urgency of grace, sort of to, to, to hammer it home as we take off. And to do that, I want to get into this lengthy passage from Mark, this lengthy that, that Jane talked about earlier today. It was great. Who, who's in charge of this thing? They should be coordinating stuff. Um, so this is Mark 5, verses 21 through 43, if you've got uh, access to a Bible. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she'll be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. This man is full of urgency, you know. You ever, you ever, you ever been, a, been a person who's come home and the second you walk in the door, someone's, the, your children or, or your spouse or someone is just coming up to you with demands and, and you, can't even, you can't even think uh, before you've been accosted uh, with need? Well, that's what's going on. <laughs> it's wonderful. Um, that's what's going on with Jesus here. So this is what happens. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Well, immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet. Trembling with fear, she told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from suffering. 
And while Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. And then he put them all out. He took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Now, this is always paired together in the Episcopal Church, at least, when we have our lectionary and they choose readings for us to read. These two, it, it, it's like a framing device. There's a, there's a story of the guy who accosts Jesus, Jairus, and then he gets sidetracked by this woman, and then you get the ending of the original story. It's literary. It's kind of, it's, it's beautiful, but it's always paired together. And I decided to talk about it today because of the urgency. There's urgency from the father. There's urgency from the woman. There's a notable lack of urgency from Jesus. Right? I love it. What's going on? Well, the first thing that happens, again, Jesus has landed. He sets foot on the shore. And Jairus says, come to my house. You, you, I need, I, I am a man who is, who, is, who is of authority, who is at this point. The last possible option I've got is you. So please come and help me. He's in a state of emergency, right? A state of emergency. His daughter is on the brink of death. And as emergencies often do, it's driven him to overcome every obstacle in order to get to Jesus. It's not just physical obstacles, but other less tangible ones like ego and pride. The text, in fact, tells us that he falls at Jesus' feet. Now, he's an upstanding you know, official here, but he humbles himself. He humiliates himself, and he begs Jesus to heal his sick daughter. Now, those who have children know, can probably identify with that sort of desperation. This is a, a young girl. She's what you say you would call a privileged girl. She would have been seen as an innocent party, a very sympathetic situation. And Christ, it looks like, complies. He responds to the urgency. It says he went with him. But before they get too far, the second incident occurs. A woman, they don't even mention her by name, so as to indicate the low status she occupies. She approaches Jesus and touches the hem of his garment. You see, she's at the opposite end of the social and religious hierarchy. She had been suffering from some sort of bleeding, hemorrhaging for 12 years, as Jane pointed out so beautifully this morning. She would not have been someone who had been really welcomed into polite society. She would have been understood to be unclean. Her chronic illness would have disqualified her, not only from marriage, but religious favor. She probably would have been blamed for her own predicament. And yet she has reached a tipping point too. We don't know much more about it except for she thinks maybe if I touch, if 
I just touch the hem of his garment, I can be healed. You don't get to that point in life until you've exhausted what the doctors have to say, I think. This is, uh, this is the kind of probably, she, she's not only poor, but the cumulative effect of years of suffering has brought her to the end of her rope, which has brought her to a certain place of urgency, so much so that she barges through the crowds and grabs a hold of Jesus' robes. Now, in, unlike Jairus, who prostrates himself and begs, this woman just takes she takes matters into her own hands, and her approach is interruptive. It feels like she's stealing power. It's this kind of weird battery-type imagery of Christ that we don't really get to in any other. It's like, this is as close as we get to superpowers, right? I don't know if you guys don't like superhero movies, but sometimes you can deplete your superpowers. You need to get recharged by the sun. If you know Superman, that's how it works. If you, if you, if, if, if he, the sun is what gives him his powers. Um, uh, they haven't made many good Superman movies, man movies since I was a, a baby, and so we've lost that in our culture. It's a very, very sad. Um, so Jesus stopped. He says, who did that? Who took power from me? And the disciples, of course, they're incredulous, as they tend to be. They say, what does it matter now? How can you tell there's so many people around you? Now, those are the differences between the two healings. One takes and the other begs. The other difference is that they're coming from complete opposite places, in opposite ways, but there's something very familiar about what's going on and what's familiar or what's, 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 un- what's common is the urgency. I don't know about you, but I happen to find any kind of talk of Christianity that isn't understood as urgent is, is boring. And we, we, we tend to focus on these, all these little behavioral um, issues and, and, and people have, Jesus is kind of a, a, a little help to you in your, in your life to kind of make you happy and nice. But the, the, the faith we see portrayed in the New Testament is usually a matter of life and death. There was a wonderful uh, article by, um, I think, Helen, Helen Riddlemeyer a few years ago talking about AA. And she was saying what... The reason that AA, that Alcoholics Anonymous, is so compelling to people is, and why they're so unthreatened by, uh, why AAs, as they call themselves, why they're so unthreatened by criticisms about God and sort of discourse about religion, they don't care because they know without God they'd be dead. So all of the talk, all of the propositions, all the arguments just aren't, this, they kind of roll off your back. They know that it's a matter of urgency. And she says in that article, she says, Christians theoretically need God just as much, but don't seem to act that way. And so, but I love this because it puts into relief uh, human need as something that is urgent. You see, in both cases, Jesus comments on the strength of their faith, and their faith flows not from love, but from desperation. One of the things, I, I, there's, an art, there's a line in, the, in low anthropology. So my, my year has been just the year of low anthropology, which is a little, a little discouraging um, if you really get into it. Just kidding. It's not discouraging, but there's a line that people have latched onto. There's in there, it says, people only change when they no longer feel they have to in order to be loved. 
People only change when they no longer feel they have to in order to be loved. And that insight is at the center of what, in fact, uh, what, what my mother was talking about this morning in terms of listening and what my dad was talking about. Is, it was about what, what Jane was talking about. I think there's actually part of it uh, in what Justin was just t talking to us about. But there is another change agent in life that's not love, and it's desperation. Desperation, urgency is the other great change agent in life. And in these two cases, what's refreshing about their faith, what's unassailable about their faith is that it flows from desperation. It is a, it is a faith that is born not out of goodness or righteousness, but out of need. Now that book, Low Anthropology, the whole point of it was to try to make a case for uh, need as acceptable and, in fact, a doorway to compassion for other people and ultimately a doorway to faith in God. We don't like to be needy. We're Americans. We're self-sufficient. I got it taken care of. I don't need anything until I do, in which case I might darken the door of a church. That's what the book was trying to do, was trying to paint a winsome and uh, non-threatening picture of human need, because I believe that that is where love actually meets us. Um, but I wonder sometimes about this book, if I made it too reasonable. I wanted to invite people in to talk about your limitations and to talk about your conflictedness, and yes, to even talk about the darker side of human nature. But there's nothing reasonable about what's going on with any of the people in these stories. In fact, one of the, the, the great truths of, uh, that I see played out in the Bible is that Jesus has very little time for reason. We're living in a uh, culture, I think, that overestimates the powers of reason. It, uh, we place way too much stock in it. And this is one of the reasons why, at least on the mocking cast and in everything we've been doing this year, we've been highlighting the work of musician Nick Cave. If you know of Nick Cave, he's an Australian singer-songwriter who's known for writing songs about desperation and for writing songs about grief. And he's lost two children, and he's not kidding around. He's not interested in happiness. He's interested in survival. And he's interested in life and death. And so it's such a breath of fresh air to read what he has to say. And this is what he says. He says, things happen in life, great obliterating events, where the need for spiritual consolation can be immense, and your sense of what is rational is less coherent and can suddenly find itself on very shaky ground. But this is the best part. He says, we are supposed to put our faith in the rational world. And yet when the world stops making sense, perhaps our need for something greater can override reason. He's always exploring the boundaries of reason and rationality because he believes that's where there's something deeper, much more interesting and much more exciting, and that grief has been his, his gateway into understanding that reason really can't do much for you. And in these cases with Jairus and with this woman, reason is not what Jesus meets her with. So if low anthropology seems too reasonable, you can throw it out. Urgency, hopefully, uh, I, I'm reminded of, uh, you know, there's a, when I talk about addiction, I think it, we, we talk about it simply because it sheds light on the greater uh, uh, 
project. And, you know, in, in fact, last night when we were hearing from Harrison Scott Key, he had this unbelievably vivid and a hilarious talk about marriage. And I was in line afterwards, and I was speaking to a few of you who said, well, I'm grateful my marriage is a little better than his has been. Like, you know, that, that, that seems like a slightly extreme view of marriage where we're always thinking about killing one another. And I was like, hey, I was in the room, and you were laughing too. Like, it was, we were all laughing in recognition. But um, I thought to myself, it's, it's, it's in all things. The extreme case sheds, sheds light on the less extreme ones. And if there's hope for someone like Harrison and his wife, well, then maybe there's hope for me too. Maybe there's hope for you. That's why we talk about addiction so much with Mockingbird, because it's a place where willpower fails, where reason is shown to be um, quaint and of not much use. I'm reminded of the memoir that Heather Kopp wrote called Sober Mercies, How Love Caught Up with a Christian Drunk. She was a mother of five. She recalled the desperation she felt after her first relapse. She'd been to rehab and thought she'd gotten better, but then found herself drinking again in a closet one day. She writes, I couldn't remember experiencing true spiritual desperation until I admitted I was a helpless, helpless alcoholic. Up until that day when I got on my knees and sobbed beside my bed, God's grace had been a nice option, a convenient option, but not my only option. Grace, God as our only option. This is where things get interesting. This is where the grace of God, it's where Christianity comes alive and is of any lasting appeal to people stuck in the midst of their own helplessness. Because you see, another criticism I've, or feedback I've received from the book is that it sounds a little defeating or a little cynical about human nature. And from where I'm tried to write the book and where actually I feel is that what's cynical is to try to tell people that they can find help in places where there's no help to be found. What's, uh, I, I quoted uh, Nadia Boltz-Weber at the beginning of the book and said, it's not shame-inducing and defeating to say I cannot know it all, do it all, be it all, care about it all. It's shame-inducing and defeating to say that I can, I just haven't pulled it off yet. And so if our gospel ultimately leads people to, to look for help either within or exclusively from other people, is it actually, um, isn't that actually a more cynical view? Isn't that actually a darker one? That rather than to, to look outside of oneself, not only to one's community, one's family, one's friends, but to, to the God who can really do something about your problems. I find that to be a much more deeply hopeful and non-cynical approach to life. So urgency, let's get back to it. Urgency that we experience in life may be an out-of-the-blue crisis, like a sick child or a terrible turn of events, but I think it's equally true that it can be a slow burn, like a five- to ten-year simmering issue that just explodes one day. That's much more common. Oddly enough, the way that Jesus responds to both types of urgency you have the sudden sickness of a child, and you have the 12-year-long problem, is that he responds with mercy, but he responds not with urgency. You see, in Jairus' case, Jesus puts him on pause. 
His lack of urgency appears to fail Jairus, and we're all a little taken aback. But that's not the only similarity. There's also the fact that both of these parties, both of these people who are caught up in the urgency, their urgent need for God and their urgent need for mercy and their urgent need for grace and healing are met with op- opposition. They're met with resistance, incredulity, crowding out. Why trouble the teacher further is what Jairus' friends tell him after his daughter has died, before laughing at Christ coming into the daughter's bedside. In the woman's case, not only do the crowds represent a significant roadblock to goodness, healing, hope, the disciples question Christ's ability to know what's actually even happened here. This strikes me as very true to life, by the way. The virile nature of faith meets resistance from the world. And not just the world, but the church. Those who are closest to Christ often seem to be the ones who are the most incredulous about the fact that people want to get well urgently, and in fact that some are. But the third and most important similarity between these two episodes is that they both get the same result. In both cases, the asking as well as the taking, the highborn as well as the lowborn, the innocent as well as the guilty, both people are healed. They're given a way forward. In the second case, there is a physical resurrection. In the first case, it's a spiritual one. What is unclean is made clean. Now, the predicament of urgency being the engine of healing faith. I don't know if it's, it was brought to my mind uh, recently. Uh, it was the, um, what happened in Charleston, South Carolina in 2015. Do you remember this? It seems like a long time ago in headline time. But my older brother, John Zoll, who's now up in New York, he was ministering at a church in South Carolina when uh, what happened happened. And you know, it was this 15-year-old kid named Dylan Roof went and shot up uh, a church service of uh, black Christians who were trying to have a Bible study. Nine people were shot, and it was terrible. And it wasn't the beginning, and it wasn't the end of such acts. But afterward, the most miraculous thing happened. You see, if Justin is right, and and acts of forgiveness, real acts of forgiveness are miracles, well, then we all, as, as, as a society, witnessed one. And it was a miracle born of the utmost urgencies. The relatives of the victims' families in that shooting schooled us all in the heart of the matter, in the urgency of mercy and of grace. They showed us what Christianity is really about, and it's worth remembering they taught us what it looked like to display love in the midst of deserved judgment. Nadine Collier, her mother, 70 years old, was shot. And at the uh, arraignment, she got up and she addressed Dylan Roof, the killer. Sorry, it was at the bail hearing. And she said this, she said, you took something very precious away from me. You hurt me. You hurt a lot of people. But, there's the but, if God forgives you, I forgive you. Her sentiments were echoed by almost everyone affected by the tragedy. And this wasn't some contrived, staged forgiveness. It was a knee-jerk act of mercy that could only come from people who had heard Psalm 130 
read over and over and over again and actually believe it, that God has come to offer those urgently in need of redemption, that very redemption plenteously, as the Bible said, that in him there is the forgiveness of sin. The brother of Cynthia Graham Hearn, another one of the ladies who was killed, said to the Washington Post at the time, she said, having her in church that night at Bible study taught me about the Lord. If we lose our sister, losing her in church was the right place. She was in the company of God. She was trying to help somebody. She was not a victim. She was a Christian. Can you imagine saying something like that? I mean, ever? Especially in these circumstances? At the time, as they do now, people tried to explain it away. There was a paternalistic urge on the behalf of essentially mostly white commentators to say that this was a racial response to years of oppression. There was an urge to write it off because it was too radical. It was too uncomfortable. But then Peggy Noonan decided to speak up and say the confounding forgiveness given voice in that bail hearing was not cultural, sociological, or political. It was theological. It was about Jesus Christ. Those women did not forgive to express the values of their character or their country or their race, but to be faithful to their God. Again, that response had was met with incredulity. Surely they're jumping too quickly to forgiveness. What about accountability? Are we letting people off the hook? Not only Dylan Roof, but an entire system. The kid's still in jail. He hasn't been let off the hook. But this is the, precisely the same incredulity that we see in that gospel reading from Mark. The members of that church understood that to claim forgiveness, that God forgives at a time like this, is to say that unlike us, God is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And I don't know about you, but I need to know that there's something in the world more powerful than sin, guilt, hurt, shame, and revenge. Nick Cave sees it. He said that at the end of the day, all of his work, everything he's trying to do with his life, is to ask one fundamental question. It may be the question, he says, that our, all of our lives pivot around. Indeed, the whole world revolves around, and that question is, can we be forgiven? In his mind, to be forgiven is to be released from our own personal culpability. And it does provide a way forward where there is none. That is why it is so urgent. It is so urgent. Cave goes on to say that a society without mercy loses its soul because it devours itself. Mercy ultimately acknowledges that we are all imperfect and in doing so allows us the oxygen to breathe to feel protected within society through our mutual fallibility. What he's saying is that we don't need more revenge. We don't need more guilt. We don't need more sin. We need the opposite. Guilt and fear, they lead us to protect, to defend. Grace is the only thing that allows a person to look at his or her own part in societal forces or in their own marriage 
as Harrison talked about, look in the Walmart mirror. Remember that? It makes such a thing as repentance possible. That's what Justin was saying. The kindness of God which leads to repentance. Because free from that, we can acknowledge our culpability and complicity. We can seek to address wrongs, not from a place of guilt, but from a place of gratitude and love, from a place of clarity. It's no coincidence coincidence that the healing that occurred in Charleston in the wake of those remarkable events was swift and conflict-free. So what I'm saying is what these people understood and what the passage illustrates so powerfully, that God's mercy, of which we are in urgent need, is not reserved for the righteous. It's not reserved only for the victims. It is not reserved for lesser forms of wrongdoing. The stunning, offensive thing about the grace of God that it is, not is that it is not dependent on context, meaning it is not dependent on you. It is dependent only on Christ Jesus himself, which means that it meets both askers and takers, the high-born and the low, the privileged and the oppressed, the guilty and the innocent which is a long-winded way of saying that the grace of God does not wait for the correct response. It produces the correct response. Now, how might we, walking out of here, further the urgency of grace? Uh, I think the first thing we can do is remember that we are no different than those who are locked in prison or uh, completely weighed down by their infractions and culpability. I think to make distinctions too ironclad between us and them, between the good and the bad, is to miss the point entirely. But there's another thing we can do, and I was reminded of this the other day when... Um, when Jim Nestigan died, he was a Lutheran theologian that uh, was sort of formative for some of us, a stu student of uh, the great Gerhard Ferdy. And um, after he died, he died on New Year's Eve this past year. And the, the most listened to episode of The Mockingcast we've ever did was when we read his whole story about forgiving some guy's sins on a Delta flight. Do you remember this episode? Well, the most, most listened to is one was right after Sarah's parents died. But the, the second one was this story of this enormous Norwegian man getting up as they were supposed to be landing and telling the, 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 the flight attendant that he was not going to be sitting down because he needed to proclaim the forgiveness of sins to a Vietnam vet who'd spent the entire plane ride telling him all about how he'd been haunted by what uh, the, the people he'd killed. And... Um, what Jim understood is what I think we who are wanting to be agents of grace in the world might do well to remember. And this is how his friend Scott Keith put it. He said, Jim found that people are always confessing their sins. They confess in casual conversations and in serious ones. They confess when sharing stories and when telling jokes. They confess in churches, in living rooms, and yes, on airplanes. They confess intentionally and when they don't even know they are confessing. Our job is to continually tune our ears to these confessions, not for the purpose of sanctimony or gloating or gossip, but for the sake of absolving. 
Christ, God, has put us in this world of sinners and surrounded us with them. They have names and we know them. They are fathers and mothers, wives and husbands, children and parents, friends and enemies. And when they confess their sins, God, who is faithful and just, forgives their sins and cleanses them from all unrighteousness. How does God do this? He sends preachers into the world. The world needs preachers, but you need a preacher. Some wear collars, but thankfully, some do not. We just call them Christians. You and me. So perhaps you have something urgent in your life that's going on where you need to hear the urgent word of God's forgiveness and mercy. Or more likely, you're sitting on something that has been boiling for a long time and you're afraid it may explode someday. Maybe it's related to something systemic and societal. It could be purely individual. You may be the victim. You may be the perpetrator. I am here to tell you that the way that Jesus met those two sufferers is the way that he meets you in your own desperation, your own urgency, which is not with recompense and a wagging finger, but with plenteous redemption. Of course, as with Jairus, the timing may not be ideal. I get it. But his mercy does not depend on context, because it does not depend on you. It depends only on he himself. So wherever you are as you leave this little conference we've done, whatever you're going through, believe me when I say that there is a way forward. And it has to do with the one, the only one, who while we are faithless, is faithful, who has the gall to carry that flaming coal to us and say, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. Your guilt has departed. Your sin is blotted out. Your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. In the midst of so much secondary uh, issues, that is the most urgent. It also happens to be the most true. Amen. Amen.